What is up and welcome back to the Four Eight Men podcast. I am uh, so excited for our guest today. His name is Jefferson Bethke and he's coming to us all the way from Hawaii. So Jefferson, welcome to the podcast. Yes. Hey, what's up, man? Stoked to be here. This is fun. Well, if you don't know who Jefferson is, Jefferson is one of the most unique and diverse and uh, just all-encompassing people that I've had the pleasure to get to meet. He's a husband, a father, an author, an entrepreneur, a spoken word expert, and um, just pretty much everything on the map he can do. So super excited for our conversation today. Appreciate that, man. Yeah, I, I do like to say I, I do. People start to make fun of me at this point where I do a lot of different things and have my hands in a lot of different things. And, you know, I just I grew up ADHD. And so, you know, I got diagnosed as a kid. So I just like to say, hey, I'm trying to I'm trying to put that to good use. You know what I mean? I'm trying to just pick a lot of really good, awesome things. So maybe too many. Yeah. Well, what what are some of the things you do? Because before we started, you talked about Legos and spearfishing and all yeah. your other things yeah. that you love to do. I mean, I mean, it, it, it is a joke and it, it is random at this point because it is funny. I, I don't know if you saw yesterday on Instagram, but we just launched a new women's clothing line, which that's hilarious, you know, and like a women's clothing boutique. I'm actually in our barn right now. I don't know if you have, if the podcast is on video or not, but I'm upstairs in our loft with all like my office and fun Lego and stuff like that. But downstairs is actually the women's clothing boutique, like warehouse. And uh, I don't know, do a bunch of other projects with buddies of mine, John Mark Comer, John Tyson, write books, do spoken word. Um, yeah, I love being a dad, love being a husband. So I don't know, there's, I, I forget at some point. Oh yeah, I have a little project called Bible Build, which is like a teaching, it's like basically a kid's Bible curriculum, but we use, you have to build the stories with Lego to like remember them. That's a fun one. I don't know, too many things. Yeah. Have you always been like super studious and hardworking like that or like entrepreneurial? Uh, no, that's a good question, but definitely not. I was the... I was the, um, well, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't start walking with the Lord till 19 or 20. And so it is funny how um, I, uh, uh, I think the Lord can even change your work ethic, right? Because you now have different principles and different operating values. But yeah, before then, I was actually kind of like a rough kid. I got kicked out of school, got in fights and, you know, transferred all the time. And I even got arrested at 16 from Target. That was a, that's a fun story. <laughs> um, but no, so all that to say, no, I was not. Uh, but when I started walking with the Lord, he, he really did some work on my heart of just, you know, you, I think I just different values got in there. You know what I mean? And, and so I do, I do care about trying to do things with excellence now and realizing that life is worship now and however we do things. Who was who a, what was a quote I heard from my buddy the other day? He was like, he was like, how you do one thing is how you do everything. And I do think that's a philosophy of my life. Just however you do one thing, meaning are you lazy? Are you hardworking? Are you diligent? Do you pay attention to details? Most likely that's how you're going to do everything. And so I'm, I'm a big believer yeah. of that. Are you a, are you a one on the Enneagram? <laughs> I'm not, I'm an eight, an which eight. is kind of like a cousin at some level, yeah. but yeah, yeah. So I'm similar in the sense of yeah. just like the ones, the threes, the eights are definitely kind of the, 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 you know, just go maybe a little too hard, too much. Yeah. Well, I'm a one that just made me think you seem very efficient and very, yeah. like, very on top of the ball. So I love that. Yeah. I get along with one. So that's yeah. actually fun. We can be, right, we can cool. be best friends. We can be best so like, friends. Like, yeah. Like half of my friends are all ones, which is kind of yeah. funny. I don't know if there's just some weird combo there that is good. That's awesome. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you're from Hawaii or you're not from Hawaii, mm -hmm. but you live in Hawaii now. Yeah. What are, what are, um, what are some of your favorite activities to do in Hawaii? Yeah. We were just talking about that before the podcast. So in Hawaii, I love spearfishing. That's a fun one. And I, like I said, gave you props. You're the first person who ever even knew some of the lingo and the thing I say spearfishing and to most people and they're like, what is that? How does that work? Now I am a weird breed too, because I'm, I'm a Seattle Tacoma guy born and raised. So of course I'm going to have a little, uh, you know, like grew up never shooting a gun. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I am the classic stereotype. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know what that was or how to operate it, blah, blah, blah. And I still have it. Like I've never actually hunted on land, but for some reason, once I get in the ocean, I, I, I go for it. So I don't know why I have this weird mental divide where in the water I can just go dominate fish. But, um, that I'd say paddle boarding, snorkeling, 
Um, yeah, and then just, I mean, we have, we have like seven, five, uh, three-year-old. And so I'm, I'm always just kind of, we're just kind of outside. Just, you know what I mean? Like beach runs, little waterfall runs, cliff jumps. So that's probably yeah. mostly what you do out here. I do like it out here because it, um, you definitely don't, uh, you're not trying to do, you're not trying to keep up with the Joneses here, which is a fun thing about Hawaii. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit slower. And uh, yeah, you just go outside instead of try to pay for entertainment all the time, you know? Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, do you feel like you've gotten in better shape since you moved to Hawaii? Because I feel like, I feel like for yes. most people, you know, you have hiking and surfing and you have all these different activities in Hawaii that I feel like yeah. you would become in better shape, I, I feel like. Yeah, no, 100%. It's funny you said that. But yeah, it's like you, you see people are in shape here. And I don't know if it's a little bit of the chicken or the egg thing of like it's the people that move here are kind of that mentality or if this place kind of shapes you. I don't know. But yeah, you, you know, when you're in the water, when you're swimming, when you're doing all these things, spearfishing is a really funny one where that one is... Um, actually so much more of a significant workout than people think. I mean, you're out for, if you're trying to really do it at a hunting level, you're out for five hours, six hours, seven hours, you're gassed by the end of it. You're taking, you know, 40 foot drops, holding your breath. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it's a serious workout. That one's hilarious though, because of course all my friends come and visit and they hear I do that and they're like, oh, take me spearfishing. And then within 15 minutes, they're just like pissed. They're like, yeah. this sucks. This is difficult. This is hard. I'm getting rashes everywhere. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's, it is kind of funny, but yeah, it's a serious workout. Well, thinking about it too, even like, like scientifically, like if you're super heavy, like buoyancy in the water, like you, like you wouldn't be able to yeah. swim down to reef to go, to go no, shoot yeah. something. Yeah. Cause you have to swim with weight belts and all that stuff. And yeah. it's, and it is, it's like a science and it's, it's difficult based on how, how, how you're doing. So I feel like, I mean, so no, no, uh, no offense if you're overweight, but you can definitely lose weight and go have fun, have fun spearfishing. Or if yes, you want I, to, hey, uh, you know what? One, yes. One thing I'll say too, is I don't know if it's just cause it's the heat, but I feel like I'm losing weight just sitting on the beach. I'm just sweating buckets. I'm yeah. just like, I'm just laying down reading a book and I feel like I just lost five pounds cause it's so hard, hot. <laughs> do y'all, do y'all eat pretty healthy? Cause I know that you actually just started like a bee farm, right? A few, a few weeks ago, a few months yeah, ago. So we got, yeah, yeah. We, so we, we've been here for eight years. Uh, lived down by the beach, kind of did the classic Hawaii thing for six or seven years. But then last year we moved up to a place that does not, people, where we live now, people wouldn't think of Hawaii. It's like 3,000 foot elevation. It feels more like Ireland got transplanted in Hawaii. I mean, we can see amazing views and the ocean and all that, but it's very like rolling pastures, you know, coming up to our house, it's all neighbors with cattle and goats. And it's kind of the agricultural part of Maui. Yeah. And since we've kind of come up here, it has changed our way of life a little bit. I mean, we just bought a half of a cow from our neighbor last week. I think that was 387 pounds of beef, like just an insane amount of beef. I wish I would have known it was that much. I would have ordered less. Um, yeah, we got bees that we start harvesting um, on and on. So yeah, it is fun when you, when you kind of have land and you, and you kind of start getting in this, this, this spirit, it kind of like, it's like a little bit of a snowball effect where I think, yeah, you just start, you start kind of um, living into it more and more and how much more can we add? How much more can we live off the land? And it's, it's fun. Yeah. Was, was, was moving to Hawaii like a spontaneous thing or did y'all always want to do that? Cause I think you said, you said seven, five and three, right? And you moved yep. there eight years so ago. You, so you moved there before your, yeah, your children were born. Exactly. Exactly. We moved, um, I think right when Kinsley was a baby. So yeah, it, it, the, the short story is, so it's not as random as it sounds. It's not like, Oh, Hawaii's amazing. Let's go there. Yeah. Um, me and Alyssa are both from Seattle area. Um, and we met at a friend's wedding a week before she was already committed to go to Hawaii for like an internship program, not YWAM. It was like through a church, but kind of think like that. Like it was yeah. an assignment, a one year thing. So she flew out there and we met a week before that. So we dated long distance the whole time. So Hawaii does have a really, Maui specifically has a really special part of our heart and our story. Cause it was like that the, all the dating years were like, I was in the mainland 
and she was in Hawaii and I would come visit and stuff like that. And she just fell in love with it, fell in love with the people, the community. The community is really rich and deep and special here, just the way, you know, it's, I would imagine it's actually similar to like kind of more of the, the South, you know, at least from my, like kind of that open door policy, yeah. very communal front porch vibes, just like people are kind of there for each other. It's not, it's not high tech, high urban Seattle, San Francisco, New York, that's individualist. It's, it doesn't, it's, so it's, it's a really cool um, spirit about the community here. And so, and then you had Christian community, like you had the theology of community. And then I think it even like, it's like community on steroids because there's already that base layer. And then it, you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, and so then, so she fell in love with it, but then finished her assignment, her internship, moved back home to Seattle, and then that's when we got married. And then, you know, as you know, getting married recently, you kind of start asking different questions, like what are we, where are we going? What are we doing? What's the point here? And so I think uh, Hawaii was just a draw of like, hey, what we, the life we want to carve out, the vocations we want to do, um, and she missed it so much. I think we're like, that's the place we want to go. Yeah. So yeah, that's how it happened. That's awesome. Well, that that uh, doesn't doesn't sound like a bad place to be, so... <laughs> I love it. You know what? I always say someone's got to do it. There you someone's got to, you know, talk about the Lord over here. There you go. Uh, somebody asked, uh, I think it was Erwin McManus. It was, they said, uh, he, he lives in LA, but someone said, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? He said, I can live anywhere in the world and I live in LA. <laughs> hey, <laughs> that's, that's true. That's, yeah. That with, yeah, I guess Hawaii. at some level with everyone's freedom and modern travel, like you like, can. I technically yeah. could live anywhere and I, I choose to live here. So yeah, that's, awesome. that's a good point. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier that you, Came to know the Lord when you were 19 or 20. I want to get into that in a second. But before yeah. that, you kind of talked about, you know, being more rougher. Now you kind of talk about Legos mm -hmm. and all the things that you do now. <laughs> um, did you play any any sports growing up? And what, like, what was your upbringing like with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I was raised with a single mom, kind of a pretty tough upbringing. Um, you know, poverty, food stamps, you name it. But one of the saving kind of graces of my whole life, you know, childhood, teenage years, and all the way through college was sports. So, I mean, I played all the sports at, at a recreational level, but baseball was the one that pretty quickly became the, the core sport. And so, I mean, I played that for competitively for literally all the way through college. So, you know, it's weird to, it's weird to look back on it when you've done it, like all, all the way through college athletics of like, man, I played since I was four till I was 20. When did I graduate? I don't know, 22, 17 years, you know, and especially, you know, it's probably even worse now, but you know, in my era when I was, it starts getting pretty serious at like 12 or 13. <clears throat> so, I mean, that's a very, very large chunk of my life from training to playing to what it taught me. Like I, I still even, I was talking about this to Alyssa the other day. Like I still see, I still see the world through like the lens of how I was formed as an athlete, meaning like dedication, hard work, detail. Like, you know what I mean? I'm like, man, I learned all this from just like having to do it, just having to, like it's ingrained in me. And then another thing I would say too, that was a massive saving grace in my life through sports was coaches. Mm -hmm. um, man, especially as a, with being raised with a single mom, dad around, but not really in the picture and definitely not a good influence. Um, <clears throat> I, the Lord just blessed me with like two or three or four serious coaches throughout that, you know, 15, 17 year period that loved the Lord, you know, cared about making boys into men, um, cared about the hearts and just like coached and taught and, you know, beyond sports, just like making men. And uh, I'm super thankful for that. So yeah, so, so baseball was the, the one for me that yeah. kind of paid the bills all the way through, yeah. through college. Well, I'm just saying baseball was the one I didn't, I, I didn't play through college, hey. um, but baseball was the one that I played from yeah, like you said, four to 18. And, yeah. and I was, what'd you, what'd you play? I, what position? I was a catcher. Oh, I could see that. You got like a little bit of that yeah. beefiness. A, like, yeah. you know, you're like Which a brick I'm, wall. I'm, I'm taller, but I'm definitely a little, a little stockier. And it was funny because my yes. brother, my brother um, pitches. Um, so growing up, I w it was always pitch and catch because he, he, he would pitch. I would yeah, catch. Yeah, that's, a, and that's a sweet combo. It was fun. And my, uh, what I guess, do you want to, do you want to guess, guess what I, guess what I was 
just based on my quirkiness I guess, and like weirdness. Second base. No, you get think about think about my the weirdness of me of like the nerdiness, the this, the, the peculiarity, ADHD. I'd be I was a left-handed pitcher, which is so classic. Oh yeah, so classic. Well, the you way know? you were going with that, the, it made you maybe you sound like right field or something. <laughs> right field. No, well, I feel like the left-handed pitchers, man, are just always the they're just they're zoos, man. They're just they're out there. So you're they're strange. I was. I'm a lefty. I was a left-handed pitcher through college, and then I well, college I was a left-handed pitcher, and then I batted leadoff and played center field when I wasn't yeah. pitching. But so I was kind of like a small, little, scrappy, fast guy, and then I pitched on on Fridays. Did you have a good pickoff move? It was decent. It was yeah, decent. yeah, it was definitely. I was de- and I, I definitely didn't throw very hard though, so I was definitely the pitch backwards guy. You know, like the yeah. curveball, the slider, the changeup, all that stuff. But yeah. it was uh, yeah, the, the sideways cap that was just so. Yeah. I was such a stereotype. Dude, well, growing th- those kids are always the toughest to hit. Like the. Like yep. the the slow the, sl- the slower throwing yep. lefties. I mean, you yep. can't you, you can't you can't get your time. Well, because it's hard to practice for it because you don't see it too often, so you can't like get it. You can't get it in your muscle memory. Yeah. Well, I actually never would have guessed that you were a left-handed pitcher. That's so <laughs> funny. That's funny. Well, um, you know, you just kind of shared a little bit about your upbringing and stuff, and mm-hmm. you know, through through sports and um, even just coaches. You know, what like really, what is your your testimony with that, you know, when did you mm. come to know the Lord and how did that, yeah. what was that spark plug for you? Yeah, you know, my, my life is definitely a product of like looking, like all those seeds, you know, that classic like seeds were planted type thing. Yeah. And I see it, meaning like I, my whole childhood, my whole teenage years, my mom was, you know, um, we didn't, we, I wouldn't say I was raised in like a Christian home or like, I mean, sorry, like in a more of a church home, but there was definitely enough element of, just because life at home felt so hard and difficult and strained just because of the circumstance, our circumstances. So it didn't feel like this kind of like, I thought the Christian family was like, you know, the two parents, you have your middle class, you're fine, you're blah, 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 you go to church. But my mom really cared about faith and took us to church. And so I was kind of in and out of like, you know, Awanas and stuff like that. So I had a lot of this, like, this like seeds in my life and these things that were kind of, um surrounding me, then you get those coaches in my life that were massive influences that I really respected and really shaped me and kind of were always nudging me there. But you know, it just never, it never like got to the heart. It never felt real. There was no, there was no that, uh, there's never that collision of just grace really just awakening me in my heart and feeling like an actual resurrection of spirit. And so a lot of seeds planted, but, but kind of still dead in spirit. And then in high school, uh, that's when it started to kind of be like, um, because it wasn't real, then high school was just kind of like a, well, I'm kind of over this. You know what I mean? Like, what's the point? You know, this seem, this, this life, high school life seems, you know, and everything that it's offering seems better and more desirable. So kind of went down that route for a bit. That took me to college, freshman year of college, where I was going to a, a university, playing baseball, et cetera. And then that path kind of caught up with me, where it was kind of like uh because again, I do think, I always try to tell people like, you know, you, you thinking that you're going to be the best king of your own life uh, never ends well. Meaning like that's, we aren't designed for us to be kind of the kings or the driver's seats of our own life. It just ends in destruction and decay and death every single time. And maybe, maybe over the long run, maybe it takes 30 years, maybe it takes two years. <clears throat> so for me, it was a couple of years. And then in college, that was when stuff started to really just crash and burn. I got kicked off the baseball team, which that was an identity thing for me because that was my whole life. I got kicked uh, for like drinking and partying, got put on academic probation for the same reason. My first serious girlfriend broke up with me and that was devastating. Um, basically just like, I was just, I was like decaying. I was turning, like my decisions were just massively destroying my life. And I'm the person where I don't tend to pay attention or listen to people until like it's crash and burn season. Yeah. Um, you know? And, and so finally, like that was literally, it took me 19 years, but that was finally when I was just like, I don't know, man. I was just in my, I remember being in my dorm room and just having this epiphany of like, whoa, this is all because of me. 
This yeah. is all because of my choices, what I think is right, what I want to do because of my selfishness, because of my sin. And God just really broke me over my sin and revealed to me grace to me. And, and so, yeah, that would have been 2009, 2000, or sorry, 2007. I remember that, that fall where um, the end of the, the, the fall semester, where the Lord just really awakened me. And, 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 and it was still a journey after that too. It was a very powerful uh, conversion experience for me where just, man, the Lord really awakened me. But it was also a second lesson too there of like, it still took a couple of years for me to really like untangle the serious sin in my life that had kind of spider webbed over me. You know what I mean? And just like get it all off of me and the, the octopus tentacles. And of course we still fight that. That's till death at some level. Um, but yeah, and so that was a journey where college basically was just like a discipleship formative experience for me, trying to get mentors, trying to get people in my life, trying to repent of sin, trying to, uh, uh, you know, fix a lot of the broken things. And so, yeah. yeah, that was, so I have actually really good memories of college uh, and sweet memories for that reason, but it was also very, very difficult. That's, that's actually really cool because we, we have super similar stories because I, throughout high school, I was super wild, freshman year of college, super wild, then first semester, I was at a fraternity party, then same thing. It was like, got back to my dorm and I was like, like I'm literally the definition of like a lukewarm like Christian and I was yes, so miserable yes. and I was like I need to actually yeah. because it, it was like and that was what I always say it's like you know we live in a culture where it's like it'll be the best four years like college per se whatever mm -hmm. it'll be the best four years of your life but then it's like if you don't actually have a relationship with Jesus and then if you if it's like just something that you do then like like you said it's not going to be real to you because you're just going to go to church yeah. and you're not going to have any form of like conviction or any need of repentance and even yeah. even just like what you were saying it's it's even it just reminds me of like acts 2 where peter's preaching the gospel and it says when the people heard this they were cut to the heart and they said what mm. do we do and peter says repent and be baptized but i feel like it's that point of like like you said you've heard you've you went you went to church you've heard the bible you've heard all these different things but mm -hmm. it wasn't until you were like actually cut to the heart and then you were like i need to change what i'm doing and I think, and I think, yeah. I really think it's that moment for people where it's like, you have this epiphany, like you said, of like your sin and your brokenness and you're, you're cut to the heart and you're like, what do I need to do? Cause clearly what I'm doing is not working. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's even the, that's an ax too. the kind of, what do I need to do to be saved? You, you know, it doesn't have to be that exact phrase, yeah. but that is certainly, I think almost a heart posture of like, what do I, what do I need to do? There's kind of this, this, you know, I have nothing, you know, this empty pocket metaphor of just, I have nothing to bring. What do I need to do? And I think, yeah, until you get to that point of like humility and kind of repentance and, uh, contrition maybe is another word I would say. Um, yeah, it, it's funny how it's just, you can't just kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try to keep putting, you know, lipstick on a pig. You know what I mean? Like that, that's, yeah. that's the, it's the obvious word language used hundreds of times in the new Testament specifically that like you are dead. Yeah. Like you are literally in a casket. You are dead. You are a corpse spiritually. That's a very dark, actually like really gnarly <laughs> metaphor. Yeah. Um, you have to literally be awakened, resurrected, not just like kind of maybe put a little bit better tuxedo on you in the coffin. You know what I mean? Um, and, and that's a, and, and there's a very obvious moment when that happens. You know what I mean? Like there's a, that's a, there's a knowing when someone goes from death to life, you even personally, like, you know, there's, that's not just the try harder, do better. It's like, Ooh, I've been awakened. And I would even say that's actually the difficult part of the Christian life specifically when you start walking with the Lord is when you've been awake, and this is my experience, when you've been awakened and resurrected, what you've also been awakened and resurrected to is your senses of sin. Meaning like you, yeah. when you're dead, you have no like nerve endings per se. Do you know what I mean? And so there's kind of this level of like, you, you can't feel anything. So you can't even, 
sometimes I would even say it's even God's grace if you even feel conviction over sin before you even start to follow the Lord because that's like a subtle hint that something's breathing in you and trying to awaken you yeah. because when you're dead you can't even feel anything yeah. but that is also the difficult part about discipleship is when you're awakened to your sin um, it's you can also feel that sometimes in an overwhelming way and that's I think the journey usually of someone's first couple of years with the Lord is trying to realize that his grace is actually bigger than that that awareness of sin yeah because that's even like even Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus when he was like you must be born again so like clearly there's this thing there's this theme through scripture where it's like you know you know uh, pick up your cross and follow me second Corinthians 517 where he says if anyone or um uh, oh, why am I gonna botch it um if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the, behold, yeah. the old is gone. The new has come. Yeah. So clearly there's this like separation of like, you know, your former life, you know, versus the life that you're living in now. And I think that mm-hmm. it's really such this common theme, like you said, even just the idea of conviction, like, because people always ask me like, you know, how do I know that I'm saved or, or yada, yada, yada. And it's like, yeah. if, if you have a relationship with Jesus and like you said, with the conviction, it's like the conviction is the spirit. So it's like, if there's mm-hmm. something that doesn't align with, you know, with following Christ, and if you have a conviction for it, then I would just, I would, yep. I would confidently say that, you know, I think that you're walking with the Spirit. But like, if you, but if you can go do these acts of the sinful nature and not have any remorse or any repentance or any conviction from that, yeah. then I would say, you know, maybe we need to take a step back here and reevaluate, <laughs> you know, where yeah. you're at in your relationship. Yeah, well, and, and again, I do think this is a little bit of an American problem at some level because we have such a kind of squishy, weird, convoluted version of real Christ followers and then kind of like a, <clears throat> a culture of just, I do Christian things, Yeah. right? Um, and so I, I always tell people like, don't overthink it, meaning in the sense of like, we make it almost like this weird mathematical pseudo witchcraft question of like, how do I know I'm saved? Have I done like all these pieces? And I, I see that gif of like Zach Galifianakis with all the math going by him, oh, yeah. if you know uh-huh. that famous yeah, one. Yeah, sure. I'm like, oh, he's so confused. Yeah. But I feel like people feel like that with this question. But my thing is like, you, it's very clear in scripture that the, the goal of like this whole thing is intimacy with Jesus, like your creator, like you actually becoming in restored relationship with him. Now, where in any other relationship in all of your life and all of your history, do you like get all up in your head about a re- Like, do I know this person? Do I, I don't know. Do I know him? Have I ever met? Like th- that's actually like, it's weird to do that. Yeah. It's like, that's ridiculous, right? Like no one, like I don't ever stay up at night and be like, man, do I know Alyssa? Do I know, Aly- like, am I, okay, do I know her? Do I really know her? Like, have I ever met her? It's like, no, I've, I'm married to her. Yeah. I've see, I see her every single night for the last 10 years. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And so there's a, I think that actually is a good and a bad revealer. And what I mean by that, like, it, it's just, it's a, it's a true smokescreen of like revealing, like, you know, you know if you know him or not. Mm-hmm. It's okay if you're fa- failing and falling over and stumbling or whatever, but you know if you feel like you just your heart longs for Jesus, yeah. that you can re- that you can reflect on these moments you've had with him, of him meeting you, him speaking to you, him talking to you. Now you might even had one long in the past. By the way, there's maybe been a real serious season where I would almost call that like a separation, right? Even with the marriage analogy, where you haven't yeah. talked to him for years, but that's also you know him, right? Yeah. And so like restore that relationship. And then there's the people where they're like, oh yeah, when they think about it like, they're like, oh yeah, I've, I, I do Christian things, but that doesn't, that doesn't resonate at all. Yeah. Meaning like I don't, sure. when you, I don't know him. Like yeah. I literally have never talked to him. I've yeah. never felt met by him. I've never felt seen by him. And so to me, I think we like weirdly overthink that question specifically in like the West with like millennials and Gen Z, when it's actually a pretty clear, easy way to like, it's a very intuitive question if you understand it's based in relationship. Mm-hmm. 
What's the difference? Because I'm just going to ask you about this verse because for a while it kind of wigged me out. But, you know, in, this, in the sense of like the difference between us knowing Jesus versus Jesus knowing us. Mm. What do you mean by that? Like, give me a little bit more explanation. Like Matthew 7, like that always just freaked yeah. me out. Like, depart from me, yeah. I never knew you. So like the yeah. language of like, how can I know him, but he not know me? And then in John where Jesus is performing miracles and just says, uh, when they saw the signs, they believed in him, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. So there's totally. this like, you know, I can believe because of this or I can know him, but he doesn't know me. So for yeah. he, when I was, you know, I say first saved, you know, at whatever point yeah, in my life. But I know what you mean, though. Like, those um, verses can mess with you. They mess with you, man. Like, yeah, seriously. Yeah, 100%. That's funny. We're, dude, we must be very cut of the same cloth because I had a serious, serious season early on where I was just like, kind of what we've already been talking about. Like, how do I really know? Do I really know how to say, okay, do I know him? How do I, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I was truly like, and that wasn't coming from a place of like the cultural Christianity. I was like, I genuinely already was walking with him, but it just felt so angsty, these verses of like, ah, you know? Yeah. Um, I would say back to even what I just said, like, it's the same thing. Like, I, I think that's actually a relational impossibility for yeah. someone to know someone, but that person not to know that person. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it, it's, it's a, for someone to know you, that means you're being known by them yeah. and you also know them. Now there could be different capacities. Like of course God and Jesus know us differently at some level yeah. um, because they know everything about us. But yeah, that verse, I think actually it's funny that verse used to, that verse used to scare me and keep me up at night. This Matthew seven specifically of like, um, you know, didn't we perform miracles in your name? Didn't we, you know, cast out demons? And he just says, depart from me, I never knew you. But what's funny is it's actually the opposite now to me. I don't know if just the Lord just like blessed it or what, but like that verse brings me so much encouragement because it's like, man, look at the juxtaposition there. It's, it's Lord, did I not do a bunch of things for you? Okay. Which to me, that should actually be the pressure, right? Like, man, if that was really the game, then I would, I would feel a lot of pressure because I'm like, Am I hitting the checklist? Am I hitting the benchmarks? Am I hitting the performance? Am I hitting whatever? But Jesus actually softens it, I think. It, it's, it's a little scary, but it also, it's a warning. It's certainly a warning verse. But he also softens it of like, no, no, the criteria is, I just didn't know you. Meaning like, we have never had any interaction mm -hmm. uh, when you've also been available to have interaction with me while you've been on earth. And so to me, it's like, that can start right now. It's just like, I can interact with, the, the, you know, with him, like through the scriptures, through prayer, um, through asking. And so that, that, I don't know, it's a, that's a tough one, but for me, it's actually flipped to be an encouraging verse yeah. where it's just back to that relational core of like, okay, do I know him? And then I think you also, I think you hit the nail on the head even before that relational core, plus also very practical, measurable. Okay. If I am in relationship with someone and I love them, then I would not act this way. Mm -hmm. Right now I might mess up this way, but I'm not just gonna go roast them and cheat on them for five million years and just like just hate them and talk about, you know what I mean? Like it's just, yeah. there's, there's a level there that like, okay, that does not match up with me actually saying I'm in relationship with them, yeah. right? Consistent, you know, kind of, um, kind of sin. So that's how I would say, you put those two things together and to me it actually now is an encouragement if I do feel like there's a security in that. Yeah, well, because it really is relational. And like you said, like you have a big following. So I view it from like a practical standpoint of someone being like, oh yeah, I, I, I know Jefferson Bethke. But yeah, yeah. in reality, you have no idea who this person is, you know? So this <laughs> yeah. sense of like, you know, how you, you can know of somebody, but not actually know somebody. So it's like with Jesus, like I, I know Jesus, but I don't actually know him in, in the sense of like a relational no. Yeah. And, and I think it matters too what you, 
I think there that is a huge that, <clears throat> that is a very important distinction you made. Know of versus know. Yeah. Do you know of him? <clears throat> like, have you heard stories and he sounds really cool and he sounds inspiring and maybe I should apply some of his teaching? Or do you know him? Like relationally, marriage is the best metaphor because it really is. Like, are you, you know, have you have you entered into covenant with him based on repentance and belief? That's all it is. Repentance and faith. Um, you know, and that kind of starts this 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 covenant. Um, that you can go forward in. But even then, by the way, that's funny because like when someone asks like, how do I know I'm married to Alyssa? You know what's funny is I actually don't ever point to the marriage certificate. Uh -huh. Even though that's technically, that would be technically the right answer, right? Mm -hmm. Like the legal reason of how I know I'm married to Alyssa is this thing that happened 10 years ago. <clears throat> but, the, but the practical actual answer is because I talked to her yesterday because yeah. I see her every day. So again, it's that relational proof that's really, really important. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's key of like, man, just knowing that he loves you, he sees you. And one distinction, I do, I do think that's a fascinating distinction you mentioned of, yeah, there is levels of being able to know of, and then especially if someone's way on a larger platform, whatever, you know, but Jesus is different in that he is the God of the universe. So he intimately knows every single one of us, the hairs on our head, our hearts, our stories, and he invites us into that relationship. And we just have to say, yes, I think that's really important. Yeah. When you talked about being discipled throughout college, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the rest of your season there what are what what are some practical things that you had walked through to get discipled after you came to know the lord yeah i mean i think a, a very practical one is i think specifically with men uh specifically young adult like you gotta you gotta just go full charge on like eradicating your sin and the common idols that are prevalent you know whether it's porn lust money even i think ambition and drive is a one like making sure that's tempered and holy and the the, the right and it's been baptized you know quote unquote at some level yeah um i think that's important because here's the thing if you don't i am convinced of this if 22 year old guys do not deal with those things at 22 then they will come up at 32 and 42 and they'll be way more consequential i'm not saying that it's not like sin isn't bad you know no matter when but i do think there i do think that there's consequences have different levels yeah. And so if you don't deal with that at 22, you will blow up your marriage and your family and your kids at 42. Yeah. Um, and so you got to deal with it because, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, I think it was, um, I can't remember where I read it, but it was kind of this ancient wisdom um, that I, that I read from, I don't even know, maybe it was the Jewish Talmud or something, but it's kind of this framework of, of, of three, three or four stages of a man, I think, where it's basically like the, the natural flow of a growth of a boy to a man. And then also like just a man into leadership is you have to, it's, it's the concept is reigning and ruling, right? So the garden mandate is, and this is actually true of women too, by the way. So they would have their own version of this, but, um, <clears throat> the garden mandate is to reign and rule, mm -hmm. right? Like we are actually Kings. We are actually set over a domain commissioned by God to reign and rule and reign and rule means that we would like extend our, our image bearingness and our craft and our, you know, and all the reflections of God and his goodness and his love out into the world and create order. That's essentially what it is, right? Like reigning and ruling just means you're creating order out of chaos. Chaos is the ultimate center of sin and order is the ultimate center of, uh, of godliness. And I don't mean order in the sense of like type A perfectionist. I mean, order in the sense of shalom, like that life is going in its design and how it's meant to work up, work with. So, so the stage, so like we're, that's innate in all of us that so we're created to reign and rule. But the stages of a man is you have to learn to reign and rule yourself first. Yeah. So like you, it's not actually like, I think so many times we jump out, right? Like I want to go reign and rule and get power and authority and do whatever. No, the first, the first domain that you need to learn to reign and rule is like yourself. Mm -hmm. So your sin, your addictions, your lust, like you have to learn to, to be a king over those things. You have to learn how to subdue them. You have to learn how to take that chaos and bring order and fruit, right? 
Okay, then once you learn how to reign and rule over that, then I do think God in his providence and in his grace allows you then to quote unquote, I don't mean this in like a domineering authority way, but like quote unquote reign and rule with a partner, right? So that mean, that would be like, you know, marriage, right? You now are called to co-labor, co-reign and rule alongside another human. That's more privilege, but that's also more responsibility. And there's more also possible possibility for uh, ramifications and consequences there, okay? Yeah. Then, I think after that, you're then called to reign and rule over what I would call a small tribe. So that could be a family, that could be your neighbors, that could be like just kind of these little units. You are now, this is what leadership is. This is the path of leadership, okay? Then you're called to reign and rule over, you know, a small tribe. Then lastly, I think we're called to reign and rule over cities. And I think cities are met a little bit metaphorically, but that's the ultimate stage of like a sage, wise, 75-year-old man who has lived a godly life, who has been faithful, is they're reigning over cities. They're reigning over these massive businesses, these massive cities, these massive neighborhoods of influence and love and justice and peace is flowing out from them. And that is the natural, the natural stair step that I think every man has to take. The problem is, the problem is if you skip one, it just wreaks havoc. Mm -hmm. So if you try to go from nothing to reigning and ruling with a partner, most likely the fact that you didn't reign and rule yourself will actually explode on that person and your sin will just destroy massive things, right? Yeah. And you can go to the next one too. When you don't reign and rule over with a partnership, then you go to a little tribe and your sin just bleeds out on the tribe, same to a city. So I think it's a fascinating kind of concept that I'm always thinking of is am I taking the natural order of I think how God has designed leadership, image bearingness, specifically when we're talking about manhood to work. Yeah, well, I love, well, first off, that's, that's so good. You just preached there. Um, but I love how you started that with the idea of like having, needing to eradicate it. Cause I feel like, you know, it's even that idea of like eradicate over confess. And I, I'm all about confession and I know that it's all throughout the Bible, confess our sins. He is faithful and just, but there is this sense of like with confession, there does have to come this act of like repentance from it. And the idea of like you eradicate it. And I just think about when I was a freshman in college, we had a Bible study and for a few months we would, it would we would do prayer requests kind of things. Just, you know, what are we struggling mm. with? Yada, yada, yada. What can we be praying for? And week after week, it was pornography, lust. And then finally it <laughs> yeah. was like, it became this sense of like comfortability in the sense of like just confessing it. Like I'm struggling with this. Yeah. This but is there, always going to be but around. But there was never this sense yeah. of like, because well, uh, it went on for a few weeks and then finally we were just like, okay, are we actually going to do something about this or are we just going to keep mm -hmm. living in this? And, you know, Paul Romans 6 yeah. says, you know, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means. So there's this sense of like, we need to put this to death because we keep confessing it. We keep asking for prayer for it. But like, what are actual steps that we're, that we're putting into place to actually eradicate it? Because we're clearly losing this battle. So I love, yeah. I, I, I love how you said eradicate. Yeah, well, it's that John Owen quote, right? I mean, from the 1600s where he says, you know, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And you, there's, those are the only two options in life. You don't, there's no neutral. There's no just kind of, well, I'll just hang out and sin will be over here and I'll be over here. It's you're either killing your sin or sin is killing you every second of every day. Yeah, I, I, heard, I heard someone say it the other week and it was, um, I think it's in Genesis where it talks about like sin crouching at the door. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's the story of uh, uh, Cain and Abel, I believe. Yeah, 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 and then yeah, it also it comes Cain back in First Peter, where yeah, it's Cain like sin is, yeah. And it's, what's funny is that the, even if you actually get into the Hebrew of that text, actually, it's a fascinating, it's way more aggressive too. Crouching feels a little bit like I'm just kind of hanging out waiting. There actually is the like sin is, the, the real Hebrew there is actually like, I'm going to like SWAT team blow down the door. Yeah. And so it actually is fascinating how aggressive it is. And, and the scriptures make it clear, sin is yeah. aggressively pursuing us. 
uh, Satan is aggressively pursuing us. He hates the image of God in us. Um, and he absolutely hates anyone who's been resurrected with Christ. And so he's going to throw everything he possibly can at us. Yeah, I mean, it says he, he roams around like a, like a lion looking to devour. So yeah. clearly, like, there's this battle that, you know, we need to be ready for. And it's, I feel like a lot of us just aren't ready. Like, you know, we, 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 we go through the motions, we do these things, but we're not, like, actively in battle, like, looking to defeat this because there actually is a real enemy and. Yeah. If you look at the landscape of our society, yeah. he's, he's clearly winning. <laughs> yeah, one of my friends used to always say this line, you know, he's like, he's like most Western, it's kind of a, quite a picture, but he's like most Western men are on the, um, most Western men are on the spiritual battlefield with their pants down. Yeah. Meaning just we're just like, that's, we are not, we are doing something else. We're not fighting battle. We're not suited up. Um, we don't care. We're not diligent. We're not vigilant. Um, and yeah, I do think there needs to be a framework change and it's tough. It's tough in the, especially in the West. Cause like we're hypnotized to go to sleep, everything yeah. about entertainment to our culture, to how we get fed, to our food. Like where we, it is innate. Like that's, that's one of the most powerful things. I think that's kind of the, uh, idols of the West is just like, is, um, we just, we get made, we're made, we're made and hypnotized to be weak, just super weak, malnourished, hypnotized, asleep, not present. Um, and I do think where there's such a, um, reminder in that blessing of scripture. I mean, you read first Timothy, what is, it? I think it's first Timothy chapter two, maybe like, it's just the, uh, um, Paul's just going through the metaphors of just like, you are a soldier, you are a farmer, you are an athlete, like all these things that are just like every single one of those is like massive diligence. Like your life has to be get dedicated to these things yeah. and you have to be absolutely paying attention at every single moment. Yeah. And even cause you just talked about the Hebrew of you know, of, of with the, with, with Cain and Abel, but even earlier when I said Romans six, like when Paul says, what shall we say that? Should we go, or should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Like when he says, by no means, the, he, the, the, the Hebrew word for that is hell no. So like, yeah, exactly. there's this like aggression of yeah. like, you must yes. like turn yes. and you must like completely just do away with yeah. that. And it's like, yeah. And, and there is a level there too, which that is tough. So I always tell people like, you're all of this, all of these admonitions, which are completely true. You need other brothers. Like you have to have other men in your life. And you know, I'm, I'm such a believer of just like a, a group of men that are just pursuing together, holding each other accountable, fighting to, for one another. Um, you know, I'm a little bit older, I'm in my thirties. And so for me, it's like, it's mostly, man, one of the richest, most special things that I do is rhythmic kind of gatherings around a fire with like some of my closest friends, usually involved, usually involving bourbon of some sorts, if I can say that maybe water, depending on your denomination. Um, but, but we, but it's something about that, man, where we just rhythmically just like, like, and it's not just the, Hey, how are you doing? It's the like, Hey, what's like, is your marriage like falling apart right now? Hey, tell us why, like we need to get in there. Um, and there's something about that, man, that when you're doing it with a band of brothers is really powerful and also way more sustainable, by the way, for the long haul. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, for me, after I, you know, really turned my life around, that was just being in a good community with guys and having yeah. people in your corner that you can sit down with and, you know, talk their struggles and even just encourage. And like you said, admonish, like it really just changed the whole game. And, and like, I love, I, I love how Matt Chandler talks about, um, you know, he says, uh, having a group of guys that you confess and you, you're really close with, but he's also, but he also says, um, and occasionally be inappropriate with. So like there is this sense of like, just, <laughs> totally. you know, just being, you know, a brother and being a guy. And I just, I, I love yes. how he, he addresses that. Yeah. Not so true. Yeah. Well, you have a book called 
um, Jesus over religion. And I feel like the whole podcast, we've really talked about how Jesus is yeah. greater than religion. But what, um, you know, what, what, uh, what's the meaning behind that title? And for someone looking at yeah. that, like, what did you want that to come across as? Yeah, dude, that's fun. I haven't had that. I haven't heard. I haven't had that book pulled up for a minute. That's like a ten-year-old book, but um, but I love it. I love that book, and I love what that book's done. Yeah, it's um, I think the meta because there there is can sometimes be confusion too with that little kind of play on words where I'm not saying that like institution, you know, any of those things are bad. Yeah. I think the metaphor again is going back to a marriage, right? Like so, think of a or not even a marriage. Think of like a wedding. Excuse me. Think of like a wedding ceremony. Okay. Yeah. Imagine if you showed up at a wedding, and like. All of the rituals are there, meaning like, I don't know, there's someone playing the guitar over there. Maybe there's some communion on the table. There's a hundred people in the chairs. You, there's, an, there's an arch with flowers. There's a pastor up there. I don't know, there's all the, all the rituals, right? But there's no couple. And how weird would it be if people just still like do the ceremony? Meaning like there's no two people up there. It's just like empty, but like they just go through all the stuff, right? Um, now, why is that enormously weird, right? That's because that's not the whole thing, including all the, the mechanisms and the rituals are meant to do what? Service the relationship up there, right? Yeah. And how weird would it look to, if there's no actual like core of this relationship? And that's actually what I tell people, like that is religion, quote unquote, without Jesus. Meaning that Jesus is actually not saying that we shouldn't do these things. One of the most fascinating studies that people can actually do is Jesus was actually theologically the closest to the Pharisees than any other uh, a kind of pressure group and theological group in the first century. Meaning Jesus was very close theologically to the, 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 the Pharisees. Most people would even, some people even, some theologians even argue he was one. Now it's so hard for us to wrap our reign around because Pharisee is almost a swear word <laughs> right now, but it just literally meant like a group of people that have a particular belief. Um, but that's also why he railed against them the most because he was like, you guys actually have the right answers, quote unquote, for most of the part, you know, they added too many traditions, too many things, but the center, like there's no couple up front for the Pharisees. Like it's just, this is just an empty thing. There's no real, there's no center. There's no core. There's no relationship. And so I think that's the difference between Jesus and religion that like, that God actually does call us to like live in spiritual formation, to, you know, be in the scriptures daily and rhythmically. These things that maybe some people, you know, would call legalistic, but I would actually call just like fighting the battle and like working out. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not legalistic to go to the gym every single day. You just know that's wise. You, you know, it's not, that, that's the thing that actually bothers me sometimes is it's like, it's not legalistic to just like go, you know, the right answer isn't just like, oh, I work out when I feel like it because that feels more spiritual. Like, right. Yeah. So same thing with like walking with the Lord. It's like, it's dedication. It takes effort. It takes sweat equity and it takes scheduling and it takes rules, but it's a, it, but it's the core has to be true or else it's all just a farce. It's all hypocritical and it's all for nothing. And so that's the difference is that, you know, the rituals per se at the wedding, whether it's scripture reading, whether it's going, attending church, because we're also commanded to live in community. Um, those things are meant to service, service the couple at the front, which I would almost say, if you keep tracking that metaphor down, would be us and Jesus, right? Like this, that we are united in relationship with him. And that's the core essence of, of what it's for. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how I try to think of the difference where, um, most people, most people don't think about it like that. No, that's one of the best analogies I've ever heard. That's, I think, no, <laughs> nice. I, okay. I, I actually think that's, that's, that's really spot on. And it made me want to ask you, like for somebody listening who, you know, is maybe right now just going through the motions and, and, and in church, but maybe not, you know, actively pursuing a relationship or even have a relationship before I ask you the challenges, um, how would you encourage that person to actually move past religion and past church yeah. and then to yeah. actively 
pursuing a relationship with, with, with Christ. Yeah, I would say again, back to the like, don't overthink it. Like it's a real relationship. So like, just like a friend, do you go to coffee with a friend rhythmically? Do you call the friend rhythmically? Do you send them snaps rhythmically? You know, I'm not saying we send Jesus snaps, but um, just like, you know, begin, begin to try to talk to him, right? Like, and, and, and this isn't just by the way, you guessing or being all in your thoughts, like the Lord speaks to us uh, primarily through the scriptures. So like open the scriptures, but open the scriptures with a reminder every time you open of like, this is God speaking to me. This is God wanting to know me, communicate to me, and I get to learn from him, right? And then prayer, same thing, communicate to him. I mean, it's this is it's not 100% true because I think also reading scripture is prayer, but there's kind of that little cliche where it's like the reading scripture is God talking to you, prayer is you talking to God. And I think that's slightly true in a slightly helpful paradigm of just like putting those together of like receive from him, communicate to him. And one thing too is read the Psalms. I always tell people who specifically are a little bit more stuck in like legalism, religion, no Jesus, etc., is craft your spiritual life after David in the Psalms. Meaning, one of the more jarring things for most Western Christians is if they can truly see and understand how, what's a good word I would say? Not maybe vitriolic, no, not vitriolic. Maybe like uh, how just raw the Psalms are. I mean, like he is like at some level cussing God out. He is depressed on some of those Psalms. He is like on the borderline of maybe even suicide on some of those Psalms. He is angry in some of those Psalms. He's deeply repentant in some of those Psalms. Like it is a, it reads like a visceral, that's what I was looking for, like a visceral diary. And there's a weird part where like a lot of Western Christians just think like that feels sinful almost to be that honest. Mm-hmm. When it's actually the opposite. I think it's actually sinful to like guard yourself with how you communicate to God. And by the way, it's kind of stupid too. Like he already knows. So like yeah, why? He already knows. he's God, right? So it's like, yeah. that just it, it just doesn't even make sense. But there's a weird thing we do with that. When I do think if we're viscerally honest with God, it changes how we begin to interact with him because we feel like we can actually... That's a true relationship, right? Like we know that with friends, right? When you just have those, it maybe happens, I don't know, once a year or whatever, but you know those moments where you just like, you're so overwhelmed, you're so pent up and you have that friend that just like, man, it just, you explode on them. Like you just, you start crying or you start, yeah, like, you know, and, and not on them, but I mean like for a listening ear. And then at the end you feel so like, oh, I feel so like seen and loved and known just because they listened. Mm-hmm. There's a level of that that's true with God with intimacy. And I think so many of us, we can lean into that more. Man, that is this is this is this has been the most encouraging podcast for me I've had. This has been <laughs> well, this awesome. is fun, man. No, I really, I, I really it. know that so many people are going to be impacted, and and I honestly think deeply moved in, into moving into a relationship. And even if you have mm. a relationship, you know, a solid relationship, I know that you're just going to be encouraged, and I know that you're mm. going to be strengthened just from the words you've spoken. So I'm I'm super thrilled to have you on today. I mean, this was mm. seriously awesome. Thanks, man. Well, I appreciate it. And it's that, it's that word intimacy, man. I would just encourage anyone, if this is the, the last thought, is <clears throat> that the whole scriptural arc is a arc towards intimacy, meaning the scriptural arc is not a story of us trying to get our way to God, but the scriptural arc is actually God coming down to us. And if you really zoom out of the whole story, it really is that. It's God in the temple and, and he's inviting people into this, you know, this, this holy space. Then it's him even being more intimate in the next act of the play, quote unquote, where he's then, be, you know, puts on human flesh in the New Testament and says, okay, I'm actually going to meet them with human flesh and walk among them. And then we kill him. Or like, so he, when we resist him and instead of him saying, fine, I'm out, I'm leaving. He actually even goes one more step deeper in intimacy where he actually says, okay, I'm not just going to put on human flesh. I'm actually now going to dwell in you. Like think about the vulnerability of God with that, where he actually says he keeps kind of coming closer and closer in intimacy in the arc of scripture 
um, from the temple to Jesus to then the Holy Spirit. And in the end, Revelation says that we're, we're not even going to need a temple because it's going to be, he's going to be our dwelling place. So then a kind of inception reverses where we actually begin to dwell in him. And it's so, so intimately stitched to him. Um, and that that's the invitation we get. Yeah. That we're invited into this real deep intimacy with God, but he's kind of this mover and this shaker on that journey. It's not like, maybe another way to put it is like, he's the initiator, we're the responder. So yeah. don't ever think that you have to be like, okay, I'm going to whatever. I'm going to, I feel like I need to go after it now. Go to like all, any act of spiritual behavior that you should ever have to do in the Christian faith is as is response because he's the one that's actually doing all of the things. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, we'll wrap up here in a second. And what, uh, what physical and spiritual challenge have you have you presented today? Ooh, this which I love this by the way. Um, I, I was thinking about it and I was Good. like, you know, this is actually more of a fun. The, the physical one is almost more like a fun game one that me and my friends used to do as like a as kind of one of those dumb high school games. But it actually is physical and helps. Is for the next thirty days, anytime you hit a stair, you have to run it. Can't walk it. Uh, and that's kind of a fun, a fun stair. So for the next 30 days, the only sucky part is, you know, you, know, you three stairs up the house, whatever, that's not a big deal. But all of a sudden you randomly get to like a school and you have to go up three levels. <laughs> like, dang. Uh -huh. But, uh, but I would say that one is a fun one. It's like, you'll be, that. you'll be surprised at how many more stairs are in your life when you commit for the next 30 days to running every single one you see, you know, and if it's only a couple stairs, you just kind of jaunt up it. But that's a fun one that actually is kind of like a game, but actually is more of a workout. And you realize you there's way more stairs in your life than yeah. you think. Um, the second one meant spiritual challenge. Well, one thing that really helped me back in my early 20s was committing to reading a couple chapters of the Gospels every day. Um, so I would also read other parts of the scripture, but something about just like centering in the Gospels, like two to three chapters a day, which that doesn't, that maybe sounds like much, but that's like 15 minutes, by the way. Like that's like nothing. Um, so you can do that at any point in the day when you have a little break. There's something about just, I mean, doing it over and over again. So, I mean, if you read a couple chapters of the Gospels a day, I think it takes you maybe a month or two months to get through all four do that for a bit and it's crazy how you just get so saturated in the life the person the teachings and the work of jesus that i think is a really powerful challenge well there you go run up a few stairs and uh <laughs> you can maybe even run up a few stairs while reading the gospels i would not encourage yes. that but if you want to you can you can go test that out well yes jefferson thank you so much for being on today man dude thanks man this was a blast i appreciate it <laughs>